This is episode 159 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Michael Barnett. He is an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, having previously completed a residency in combined internal medicine and pediatrics, and a fellowship in hospice and palliative care palliative care for both children and adults. He now attends on the palliative care services at UAB and Children's of Alabama. He is the program director of the UAB Hospice and Palliative Medicine Fellowship and is the associate director of education for the UAB Center for Palliative and Supportive Care. He has been a faculty consultant in communication skills for the United States Medical Licensing Clinical Skills Exam and is a senior facilitator for the National Vital Talk Communication Skills Training Program. He developed and leads an interprofessional communication skills training program for the UAB Health System. Dr. Barnett is board certified in internal medicine, pediatrics, and hospice and palliative medicine, and is a fellow of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, the American College of Physicians, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. He has facilitated multiple train-the-trainer courses for medical educators in communication skills with particular focus on serious illness and end-of-life care. And I know I'm not supposed to have favorite episodes, you guys, but this might have been my most favorite episode ever. And I only say that because this is just such a profound episode. It really, truly is. Um, He had me just stop and think so many times, which I, you know, it's hard for me to do as a podcast host, Um, but just some really, really good information in here. And I am so grateful to him. And I'm so grateful that um, he actually came and spoke at ASHA a few years ago. And that's how you'll hear that. I discovered him, so super grateful for him to come on this show, and I really hope you all learn something from this episode because I think we all can. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Yes, thank you for having me. So tell the people who you are. Yes, so um, I'm Michael Barnett. I'm a uh, palliative care physician. Um, I'm MedPeds trained, so I work with both adults and with uh, um, with kids and um and work here at the University of Alabama in Birmingham and Children's of Alabama. So I kind of work from from neonates all the way to uh, to geriatrics, um, but do all all palliative care, all hospice and palliative care work these days. Awesome. I say awesome, but it's not a happy topic, but awesome. Glad somebody's doing it. Yes, 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 yes. yes. I think that's the best way to put it. Somebody needs to do it. So, Um, yeah, so I heard you talk and what was it? The Meet the Masters in 2018. Was that it? That's right. Or was that Orlando? 
Do you remember where uh, we Boston. were? Boston. Boston. Okay. Like, where yeah. are we? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. It was a wonderful, wonderful talk. But tell me how you kind of got sucked into our, our, our world, our world of swallowing and how, how you got brought into that ASHA talk. I know. How in the world did I get, end up in that? So I did my fellowship training in Pittsburgh. And, and while I was there, Paul Leslie, who is um, uh, in the, the, the speech and swallow community, um, was very much a part of our palliative care group. You know, she was very passionate about helping to train um, speech language pathologists to sort of understand palliative care and understand really the role that they play in, in helping uh, patients and families make difficult decisions and manage chronic serious illness. And really, you know, I learned a lot from her just in the couple of years that I was in Pittsburgh about how words matter um, and how we talk about issues um, like dysphagia and feeding intolerance and things like that. And, and so I had moved on. I had moved back here to, to Birmingham, to Alabama, and was practicing. And But Paul and I stayed in touch, and she has now um, moved on as well. And But I think she then, and this was years after my training, um, somehow I think maybe as they were brainstorming the topics for the Meet the Masters, and they were thinking about trying to have some more pediatric content, so really trying to get some folks involved that work with kids and with families and and. And then I guess the, the light bulb went off and Paula said, oh, 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 I know someone. I know someone who works because I taught some in her classes while she was still there in communication science in Pittsburgh um, about decision making, working with parents. Um, and so that's that was the connection. So awesome. I was sort of a uh, an honored guest at this incredible convention. I had no idea. I mean, this is huge huge convention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll let you in that this podcast just hit 2, mil- two million downloads wow. yesterday. Isn't that crazy? Wow. So about, I'm, all about I'm honored swallowing. to be on the, the day after 2 million. Yes. 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 <laughs> well, and I think, you know, you bring up, you know, and it sort of seems funny. It seems absurd, right? That like, it's a, a podcast about swallowing, but like, if there's one thing that is fundamental to human experience and to like our social interaction, right? Right. It's swallowing, right? right? It's like, it's talking and eating. Like this is, this is fundamental. Right. Right. It's like, we all get it, but the world doesn't get it. So. Yes. Right. (laughs) So anyways, what, what I think is so interesting, fascinating, unique about what you do is, you know, there's this, all this talk, all this push about evidence-based practice and, you know, everything we do has to have a, you know, research study to support it. But I think when you get into palliative care, when you get into things like end of life, there's no textbook or research article or journal to tell you how to navigate these conversations. And I think counseling, things like this is such a huge part of what we do and so overlooked in our training. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, especially I, I, I will speak for our profession. I think a lot of us don't know how to have these conversations, don't know if it's our role to have these conversations. And so I'd love for you to kind of talk about what your role is and how you work with other members of the team. Yeah, that, I mean, and I think that's a great point. And I think the, the, the reality for all of us across healthcare, you know, across the interprofessional team is that historically the communication piece has been seen as less important. We would all say it's important. We'd all, you know, pay lip service and say, oh, of course, the most fundamental thing to a patient-provider relationship or client relationship is is communication. And at the same time, how little of our training actually focused on communication. And like you said, 
whoever actually taught us to have serious conversations. And so historically, communication skills training has been sort of viewed as this like soft, part of our training, you know, there's the real medical stuff, and then there's this soft stuff or fluffy stuff. And I think what our field, what palliative care really has brought to, to healthcare is sort of this, this emphasis that, that this really does matter. um, And that we can, these are learnable skills that, that while there isn't a whole lot of evidence perhaps in healthcare, there's plenty of evidence outside of healthcare and sort of how other industries and, uh, you know, manage conflict and difficult conversations. We're just always sort of late to the game. Medicine tends to be pretty conservative and sort of changing and adapt and adopting new things. But, but there is this recognition that now finally, I can say even in the last 10 years that there's been this, this shift in recognizing that, we must be starting earlier in our with our trainees in teaching communication skills and that it and it makes a difference so so what i do so i direct our fellowship program so we train physicians we've been training um physicians in palliative medicine here at ureb um since 2000 so for 20 years it's one of the older physician training programs in hospice and palliative medicine and um and then i my particular interest is in communication skills and teaching communication. And so I work with a not-for-profit um, called Vital Talk, uh, which is based out of Seattle. Um, and this is a group that actually grew up out of initial work, out of funded research work, looking at how oncologists communicate with their patients. And so it originated with this um, training program called OncoTalk. And the founders of this group recorded transcripts of interactions with patients and and providers and just studied the words and to really develop a model for having empathic communication and talking about serious news and then developed a teaching model, uh, sort of a train the trainer teaching model um, that has now been replicated across the country. So really taking what evidence we have and then just refining it over time, really incorporating a lot of, like you said, skills from counseling, psychology, um, things that others have already figured out, and then teaching those skills, um, particularly to to physicians and nurse practitioners, and now really to the whole uh, interprofessional team. Yeah, I think it just, I, speaking from experience, it just makes such a huge difference on the entire experience. I think my my son was born with unexpected issues, was in the NICU for 15 days. And I just, I'll never forget the neonatologist and the way that she just spoke to us and just said, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen. So we might as well think positive. And she was just so realistic, but but positive. You know, I think she really easily could have come in and just been like, this is the diagnosis we're facing. This is what we're looking at. And it could have been horrible, but her approach and her demeanor and the words that she says, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. It was still soul crushing, but at the same time, optimistic and really made me positive or excited that we could, you know, help my son and and there was things that we could do. So that experience alone just changed everything for the way that I want to communicate with my patients and their families forever. I love that. And the the idea that we can be hopeful and honest that at the same time, like, I think that there's this, this 
this false belief that um, somehow if we tell the truth or that if we talk honestly with people and we talk about difficult things, that we will crush people's hope. And the reality is hope is much bigger than me, right? Hope is, hope is this quintessential human experience. And the reality is that parents, I mean, it's a good example of parents in the NICU, they're thinking the worst, right? Like they're already going to this, to these really difficult dark places and thinking about all the what ifs and because they're looking at a a life to come, right? They have this whole potential before them. And what I see over and over and over in the hospital is this sort of collusion to not talk about it. That like, Oh, the clinicians won't bring it up because we don't want to hurt the family and the family won't bring it up because they don't want to talk about it. They want to sort of avoid it if they can. And so everyone won't talk about it. And yet things may continue to get worse. And it's amazing sometimes when we just come to the, to the table and just sort of put it out there and just say, I wonder if you've been thinking about these things. And there's this just incredible sense of relief and sometimes it's hard and sometimes there's tears and sometimes there's anger and right. All that comes out. And then we get to this place where, okay, now let, where do we go from here? Like, let's make the most of what we have. Let's um, there actually can be such wonderful joy and hope in those moments. Um, even when things aren't going the way we thought they should go. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll really never forget either. I walked in and there was three nurses like standing in the corner by his little isolate thing and they were flipping through the chart and they were kind of looking at me, but like talking. And then I heard the one girl go like, does she know? And I just looked and I just was like, what do you guys have to tell me? Yeah. And they're like, well, we'll let the doctor talk to you. And I'm like, it was just like, it was awful, you know? And and then, you know, I, I hate that the doctor had to kind of present the news to us after I already was on high alert from that, but she managed the whole, I feel like it was the worst situation from experiencing the nurses doing that to the way that the doctor actually talked to us. It was night and day, but it, it really just does make all the difference in, in the outlook on things. Mm-hmm. And just that, that anticipation, gosh, you know, knowing that something is wrong or knowing that, and then saying, okay, now you just need to sit here and wait um, for someone who has time to come and talk to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, so much of what we do, especially in kind of our healthcare system where we're pretty siloed, right? We, we all have our role to play and we work in these big health systems where there's so many people coming in. I mean, think about your experience in the NICU and just how many different providers are coming in during the day. And, you know, when we get these consultations, you know, it's usually for a very specific question. It's like, come do this swallow study, right? It's like to this very specific thing. And we just come in and do our routine, right? We, we do our spiel. We explain what we're doing and, and we're busy, right? Like, I mean, we're, we have to get to the next one. We've got a whole list of, of studies we need to do today. And, and I mean, how often do we just walk in and just start talking? Like we just start explaining what we're doing And that subtle difference of stopping and saying, hi, you know, I'm Dr. Barnett. I'm with palliative care. Did you know we were coming or have you heard of palliative care? Did they say how we can be most helpful? Hearing from them first, you know, what they've heard, what they're struggling with, um, what, what their assumptions may already be like that 
completely changes the dynamic because the reality is, is not only do I get to meet them where they are and actually figure out what they actually need from me, whether that's information, that's support, um, but it's actually more efficient, right? We actually save time because we end up like, you know, how many times have I gone through my spiel and then, and then I'm like, oh, have you heard of palliative care? Because they're like nodding and they're like, <laughs> oh, yes, you know, my, my yeah. mom's a hospice nurse. And I'm like, oh, well, um, you know, and I just spent like 10 minutes doing my spiel. So I think one of the most important things that we can do is to, what my mentor, I love this sort of mental image my mentor used to say is, you know, we have to find out where the patient family are and, we, and then we meet them there. Yeah. yeah. I think I literally had that same conversation with someone that I was doing some business consulting with. She's like had this whole 45 minute script written out. And I was like, well, why don't you see what they know first? Because you might go through this entire thing and they'll be like, we know all this. And she's like, oh, I didn't realize that. I was like, let's just get to the point. See where they are. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I love that you said that, but it's true for so many things. You know, we, we practice our scripts and we think we know everything and, mm -hmm. you know, they're sometimes more prepared than we are to have the conversation. So that's right. And I think that's especially true when we get into difficult conversations when, you know, when we know we're going into a serious conversation or we know when someone, you know, a, um, a patient is seriously ill or has a, you know, complex, has a chronic condition and we just start to make all these assumptions about what this family understand or don't understand or what, how they define quality of life. I mean, we just start making tons of assumptions without ever asking um, kind of how are they dealing with all this and how, what are they thinking about all this? Yeah. I think we, I, not that we forget, but when looking at the whole, you know, evidence-based triad, or some people are even adding an extra diamond or whatever model of evidence-based practice you look at, there really is this strong component of the patient's wishes and, and what they want. And so often we don't think of that until the very end. You know, it's like, oh, how's this working out for you? Whereas if we had probably put this in in the very beginning of the conversation, the course of things might change drastically. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I, and I love that sort of <laughs> that. How true is that? That like we we have our evidence based idea. We're like, this is the right thing to do, and we go in with this sort of agenda that this is the right thing. Um, and what happens when that either a doesn't fit the situation completely? Because the reality is, right, our evidence base is only as good as the research that it's based on. Like it doesn't always apply, right? We do our best to see sort of what is generalizable and what's applicable to this patient in this room, to this family. But, but life is always more in the gray than the, the funded research study was, right? It's always more complicated. And, and then what happens if their goals don't fit that? I, I do remember specifically with my son, there was something we wanted to do in the NICU. And one of the nurses said, well, you know, if you do that, that insurance will deny your entire stay. And right now your bill's over a hundred thousand dollars. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that's how we made decisions around here. Okay. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> she's wow. like, I'm just telling well, you the facts. If Whatever you want to do, it's up to you. And I was like, oh, oh okay. All right. Right. Thanks. Right. Yep. And I'm sure that did a lot to really bring the emotional tone down yeah. in the room, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting, but yeah. 
let's let's talk about delivering serious news. Mm-hmm. And and you said sometimes we minimize the impact of that. Yeah, you know there are these. Um, so in communication training in particularly with physicians, but really applies to, to everything. You know, if you think about, and this is what I talked about at ASHA, you know, when I, we talked about giving serious news and, um, and I presented a talking map for sort of how to give serious news, because if you think about how we've all learned complex procedures, when we went through our training, you know, they didn't just send you in and tell, tell you to do this fees, right? You didn't just like walk in and you've never, ever seen the equipment. You've never, you, you watched a video, you, you read about it, you, you know, simulated it, you watched someone else do it, you were observed doing it, maybe even did a similar, like there were so many steps to get to that place. And then there was this very structured way to do it, right? You, you have to lay everything out, you have to make sure everything's set up, you go through these steps, often with checklists. And why is communication any different, especially a complex communication task, one where we know that there's great potential for harm. So just like a procedure at the bedside, if you think about the things you remember, remember, like the stories you're telling from the NICU, you remember some of these things that were said to you and you will remember them forever. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's great potential for harm, for lasting effects. And so, so I'm a big proponent of having these kind of talking maps that walk us through a complex communication task like giving serious news to help us make sure we don't miss anything. Um, and, and also it gives us sort of a, a framework to fall back upon because when in the heat of the moment, right, when things aren't going well, when people are upset, now if I've got sort of this structure that I can remember, okay, I need to remember, make sure I do this. I need to make sure I address this. I've got more bandwidth left over now to, to attend to people, to care for people, right? To attend to all the emotion, to attend to the conflict, to figure out, okay, dad's over here and mom's over here. They're in very different places. And one of the big challenges that we see in teaching communication is, is this issue of minimizing the impact. And so it, it, it's kind of a, and it, it's, it's amazing that it happens over and over again. And it happens still to me, to people who do this all the time. And the reality is because it's subconscious, right? So I did not come to work today because I want to hurt people's feelings, right? I didn't come today to, 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 to want to ruin people's lives and to give them bad news. And I think the thing that I remind our fellows, our learners, students, and stuff that work with us is, remember, people didn't come to the hospital because things were going well. You know, we are seeing patients in crisis. Uh, We're seeing families at their worst, right? They're most stressed. They did not come here because things are going well. And all of that sort of walking into that room, there's this subconscious desire to make it better than it really is. So if we're talking about prognosis or we're talking about a a really bad diagnosis, um, or even in just in talking about uncertainty, and sort of all the, 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 the anxiety that comes with that, our tendency is to sugarcoat it, is to, is to kind of walk up to the line of being truthful and honest and then kind of backing away. And what we end up doing in minimizing and trying to minimize the impact of the bad news is that we confuse people right? We, we sort of tell them a part of the truth or a half truth, and then we redirect it and 
try to say something positive because, oh, they started to cry. And so now I'm going to say something, oh, well, it's not as bad as it is. And it's like, oh, well, is it bad or is it not bad? And I see this over and over again when we get called because so-and-so um, doesn't get it, you know, that this person's getting sicker or they're, you know, they're not recovering from their stroke and they're still struggling with this issue and they just don't get it. And when we start to explore with the patient or with the family members, what have you heard? You know, what have you been told? I don't know how many times I hear this issue where, well, this doctor came in and said one thing and this other person came in and said this other thing, or they came back yesterday, you know, today, and they said it wasn't so bad. And we're not sure who to believe what's right. And the human tendency is like, well, I'm going to pick the best one, right? Like if you tell me I have one in a million chance, well, I'm going to be the one. <laughs> and, and so we just have to make sure that in our attempt to try to care well for people that we don't minimize the impact and confuse them or mislead them because the rest of decision-making hinges on this, right? Of them having an honest understanding. And the reality is that we can teach the skills to respond to the emotion, right? That the way to help patients and family members not to be upset isn't to not tell them the truth. Right, right. And that's what we see over and over again. Well, if I don't tell them, then they won't yell at me. <laughs> um, no, I wanna be honest with them and I wanna teach the skills to how to respond when someone's upset and they're yelling. Yeah, that's beautiful, I love that. I. I... Yeah, I, th I think exactly what you said. It's one thing to be, you know, kind of wishy-washy, but to just flat out confuse them. I don't think we realize that mm -hmm. we do that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, you talk about, you know, pediatrics, that so much of, of pediatrics is uncertain. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, sort of just by definition, kids are resilient and they, um, uh, they surprise us all the time, especially in a place like the NICU. You know, even when we've seen things that are really devastating or, or scary, kids get better. Like they amaze us. And there's something wonderful and beautiful about that. And it makes it really hard, you know, early on and sort of hearing that news to, to sort of hold both, you know, to, to sort of be honest about where we're at and what we're scared about or what we're worried about and know that there's still a lot of uncertainty. And, and the reality is we can we can hold both of those. We can walk that road together. And I say this language so often, you know, I, I say, look, only the Lord knows for sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sort of whatever language, you know, faith is important to this family, you know, only the Lord knows for sure. Or, or you know, doctors don't know for certain. Um, here's what we see, you know, taking care of lots of other kids like this or seeing what we've seen the last few days, hear what we've seen. And here's what we're worried about. That said, we're going to know more this afternoon. We're going to know more tomorrow. And we're going to get a sense of how things are changing. And I promise that I'll be honest with what I'm seeing. And so just this sense of like, we're going to take it one day at a time. And we're going to be honest every day. And we're going to celebrate the things we can celebrate every day. Um, and we're going to do it together. That is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. That is. Um... How we answer feelings with facts. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, 
this is how most of us are trained in sort of healthcare. It's like, oh, well, the reason she's upset is because she doesn't understand the results of this test. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so we say, well, maybe what I can do is I can bring in the computer and I can show her the pictures of the barium swallow. Like th- that if, if I just give her more information, she'll be better. Or if, if, if um, you know, he, he yells at me that this is someone's fault, and my knee, my knee jerk response is to sort of defend and try to rash, you know, explain away and say, oh no, no, you know, blah, blah, blah. But if we think about, well, we all know this. We've seen this in our own families. We see this on TV all the time. What happens when people hear that they have cancer? Right? They hear the c word. They hear they have cancer. And then what happens the rest of that conversation? Right? It's just don't hear a thing. They don't hear a thing. And there have been wonderful shows and movies that have sort of shown that moment. And we've all we all have that in here. But then when we actually are at the bedside, we sort of forget that. And so we give people, you know, a difficult piece of information. And I think part of the problem is, is because we've made it all about cancer, like some awful diagnosis, right? So we only go there if we're giving that piece of information. But imagine telling um, a family member whose you know, child has been declining and, and, and they have you know, neurologic issues, but one of the things that they love more than anything is eating, right? Like that brings so much joy to their day. And then to tell them that he's continuing to um, aspirate and then to use words like, you know, he will never be safe to eat. To us, routine, language, you know, matter of fact, but how devastating is that news? And then we, I mean, it, it's, it's basic sort of neurobiology of like what happens now in the brain. So I've just sort of threatened their loved one's life, right? I've threatened this thing that brings them joy. And so we go into this fight or flight kind of protective mode and our amygdalas take over, right? Our lower kind of our lower brain, our reptilian brain takes over and it is an emotional brain right? It is not a rational brain. So our higher brain function, right? All of our executive function, abstract thinking and planning, all of that has sort of shut off. And now we're just in this survival. And, and so trying to teach our learners that, okay, you just dropped this headline. You just gave this serious news. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, what comes out of their mouth next is going to be emotion right? It is going to be wrapped in emotion. And the challenge is that it will often masquerade as a question, right? Because they are going to try to play the game with us because we just barf information. (laughs) And so it's like, oh, well, what I'm supposed to, and what do we normally do? We give the headline and then we say, do you have any questions? We immediately try to make it about information, about something rational. And so then they try to make it a question, but it's emotion, and so how do we respond to the underlying motion rather than just, try, um, and we just see this over and over and over. And if you just keep giving facts to it, what it tends to do is it just kind of fuels or feeds the emotion, right? And so if it's sort of sadness, it becomes despairing and sort of overwhelming. If it's frustration, it, it balloons and gets bigger and becomes more angry and, and then eventually just... Right. And it's like, oh, well, um, let me go get somebody else. Right. Like something has to give. And so how what's the definition of insanity? Right. Uh, Doing the same thing over and over. Yes. And expecting (laughs) a different outcome. And so instead, what if we try something different? 
what if I give this difficult news and instead of just trying to give more information or down, print out a sheet of results for them, what if I say, gosh, you know, I can't imagine how hard this was to hear. This is so disappointing because I know this is not what we were hoping for. You have done everything right in, in bringing here and getting him through his rehab. I just want you to know you've done such a good job. Do you feel, can you hear how powerful that is? Mm -hmm. And imagine if you were the family member hearing those things, how instead of escalating, you can just feel it coming down. Yeah. And eventually this part of the brain turns back on. So once that emotional tone gets to a place where that higher brain can really start to function again, that's when we can start to make good decisions together. Awesome. Um, let's talk about how we focus on treatments rather than goals. Ah, yes. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of, um, the great example of this is, you know, when we have family meetings, there are these big meetings in, in the hospital and um, we do it in clinics, we do it in nursing home, we do it in all sorts of places, but we have these big meetings and we bring all these staff in and we, and then we bring the family or we bring the patient and we, you know, after all the family, the staff are all there, there's like 20 of us sitting on one side of the table and then we bring the family and sit them down and say, thank you so much for taking time. We're here today to make a decision about trach. And so we immediately lead with the treatment. And then we say, so what I would like to do is I'd like to have each of these providers talk about sort of their perspective on what they've seen, you know, pulmonary, would you give your speech language, would you give your, and we just go down the list. We give all this information and then we turn to the family and say, what do you want us to do? And usually it's just sort of deer in headlights, like, um, well, do whatever you have to do, you know, do everything or do whatever you think you're supposed to do. Um, because that's super complex. Instead, what does it look like to start this conversation with making sure that we're all on the same page? So going back to that idea of what do people understand? What do they know about what we're facing? And making sure that we're on the same page in terms of what to expect. And then actually asking them about what matters to them. And so that's this goals piece um, that most of us were never trained to ask, right? We were just trained to go in and talk about the test or talk about this treatment, but instead to ask people, you know, before we get to that, we're going to talk about those things because they're super important and we need to make some decisions before we get there. I just want to know, sort of knowing what we know, what's most important, you know, or if knowing that time is shorter, like, what do you want this time to look like? Or with this chronic, you know, kid that has this complex condition, what do they love? What's a good day like? You know, what are the things that bring them joy? Because we start to actually get this picture, this holistic picture of who people really are and what they value and what their preferences are and what they value as a family. Because that then informs the decisions about treatment. So it's turning the whole thing on its end and suddenly those hard, those difficult decisions become a little less difficult because they flow, they're in context. So that's that sort of getting the, the, the treatment cart ahead of the horse. And at, in talking with our fellows, you know, we see this a lot in family meetings. I'm like, if we're going in and we know we're going to talk about something challenging like a trach, 
or whether we're going to go on the ventilator or something like that. If early in that conversation, and this is what I try to, to coach them, that if, if, if the word trach comes up in the first few minutes of that conversation, then we are, then we are already off track. And, and what we can do is actually slow down is put the brakes on. And sometimes we even have to say that out loud to sort of say, you know, I worry a little bit that we're getting caught up in this. Can we just take a step back? And you can, and cause I want to hear from them. I want to get mom and dad spouse. I want to get them talking, right? I want to hear from them. We'll help with these decisions down the line. Yeah. I love that. I, um, I gave a talk a few weeks ago kind of about that because it stemmed from a girl that I was working with that I was training and she's like, well, what do we do with this? And what about this? And what about this? And she was just talking herself into a tizzy. And I was like, okay, well, did you ask the patient what he wanted? And she just looked at me and like, well, I don't know. And I was like, do you think that might give us a lot of these answers we're looking for here? And she was like, oh my gosh, yeah, I didn't really think of that. So, so then I gave a talk based on that. So I'm glad you just confirmed everything that I was saying. So yeah, thank so you. now you're exactly right. I mean, and, and what's crazy, right, is that seems sort of earth shattering to say, like, yeah. did you ask the patient? But again, most of us were not trained to do that. Like that wasn't on our checklist. Yeah. Which it just sounds like human nature. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think I what drives me bananas is like, where did we get lost from just having a conversation with our patient to it being so professional. You know, it's like we lost this whole conversation piece that we're both just two humans working together. You know, there it just that all got thrown out the window at some point. That's right. Into- my, my fellows laugh because one of the things I'll often say before we go into family meeting or having this conversation, I'm like, you know, and overall, don't be weird. <laughs> don't be weird. <laughs> like we make it weird. Um, yes. Go in there and talk to them and yeah. be a human. Yeah. and listen to their heart and and help them and i know and i'm not trying to oversimplify it it's actually it's almost like giving permission to clinicians to be human again yeah that's 100 because somehow it. we think that when we cross the threshold we put on our white coats we you know that suddenly we have to we, we start talking in a weird way and um and we just get more and more kind of distant from the people that we're caring for when the reality is, I mean, many of us have been on that side too. You know, we've experienced it as patients or as loved ones ourselves. Like we know what it's like. Um, and so don't be weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I hate to say, you know, I feel like it stems from like the billing aspect of everything because it's like you have to get in there and you have to tell them what we're going to do. And then you need to tell us we're going to do these treatments and that's what we're going to get reimbursed for. So I think there just has been so much kind of lodged down our throat about billing and how we're going to justify treating these patients and things. And it's, I get that, but on the other hand, having these conversations ahead of time can really find us those answers for us. That's right. That's right. And hopefully, you know, we will see a shift, you know, you're, people are asking this question about, are we measuring healthcare the right, the right way? And sort of, cause if we're just trying to demonstrate our worth based off of volume and that stuff, so this whole patient experience movement and sort of thinking about value-based care, like as we're shifting to think about like, well, what is, what does it really mean to keep people well and to, 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 for them to be satisfied with the care they're receiving? Cause it's much more than ticking all those boxes on the billing sheet. Yep. Yep. 
All right. Um, how we shirk our responsibility to offer recommendations when asked by patients and families. Mm. I mean, I think this goes with that, that same kind of flow of, you know, we find out where people are. We, we make sure we're on the same page. We explore what matters most. And then, right. People came to us because we trained to do this, right? Like, I, I wouldn't make recommendations on certain treatments for swallowing dysfunction because I don't know enough about that, right? Like that's not, I would know who to call, but we have our specialty, we have our expertise. And it's sort of when patients and families come to us, many want help and we hear it all the time. We hear them say things like, well, what would you do? Or what would you do if this was your dad? And somehow along the way we've been trained that we're not supposed to answer that question or that like that's crossing some kind of professional boundary. And so we don't do it. We're like, well, I can't say that this is, this is your dad. And, and I, and I understand why we say that. I understand that. But part of me says, well, but we should listen closer to what they're asking, right? Cause they're asking for help and they want reassurance that they're making good decisions, that they're doing the loving thing for their family member. And so if I really get, if I really explore goals, values, preferences of someone, if I really understand what makes them tick and what they, what they care about, then I can translate that into medicine. I can say, you know, I hear you say that blank and blank and blank and blank are the most important things. Would it be okay if I make a recommendation about how we achieve those things? And I can tell you that overwhelmingly, patients and families are gonna say, yes, please, right? Um, I go to my lawyer for help with these things. I go to my mechanic for help with my, like, and I come to my clinicians to help me make good decisions that, that are in context, that fit my values. And so that's, I, I think that's, and that I've definitely seen that on the physician side that there, is, there was this shift and a lot of this also came kind of from the medical legal kind of world, this sort of shift to patient autonomy and informed consent that like, oh, well, we just have to barf all the options and all the risk benefits. We just barf all this stuff out in front of them and then say, okay, what do you want us to do? And we saw it sort of swung, the pendulum swung so far that way. And then you just had people like making weird decisions because they didn't really understand what they were facing. And we've started to see that shift back in sort of the whole idea of shared decision-making, right? That what does patient-centered shared decision-making look like? And it's really this, and practically speaking, it's, it's me helping to, to make recommendations that fit their goals, that fit their values. Yeah. I think what's interesting is having these conversations with some SLPs and they'll say things like, well, at this rural facility that I work at, everybody's one big happy family. So we can have these kind of conversations. But in the big level one trauma center, we don't have time to have these conversations with families. And it's like, well, how come you work, you can operate one way in a small little rural facility, but yet you can't in a big trauma center? And I think that's just drives me bananas to hear. Yeah. And I mean, and if that's true, right, if that because part of me would say, well, maybe that's just culture and that's the way things have been prioritized. And, but if that's true 
And I think probably there is some truth to it that, well, that's not necessarily right, right? Like the system, if the system is structured to where we can't actually talk to people and find out what's important because someone's always breathing down our neck, then that system is not right. And, and, and I think you have a lot of clinicians really sort of asking that question, right? And as we are finally kind of having these conversations around um, burnout and provider wellness and things like that, that the environment that we work in can really affect how we're having meaningful interactions with our patients. And most of us, right, you have all these do-gooders who went into this because they want to care for people. Um, and so we have to find a way to protect that and give that back in the places where it has been slowly whittled away. There's this one really small rural facility. It is out in the middle of nowhere, but I love going there. And the, the administrators won like a bunch of national accolades and things. But I always wonder like how she gets recognized for these things. Cause this building's in the middle of nowhere, but they are so patient centered. It is incredible, you know, and, and I've just, I've had some really interesting conversations with her before and it always comes back to, well, it depends what the family wants. Well, just call the patient's family and see what they want. It is just like this little facility in the middle of nowhere in New York should be the model for how a lot of facilities are run because the decision-making is very easy at this building. Yeah. I must say, because it's so patient driven and it's, it sounds like such a wild novel concept. Which is, there's some work that we've been doing in community-based participatory research asking sort of the community, like how do they want clinicians to talk about serious illness? And, and number one, like the fact that, that academic medicine, that healthcare, that it, that most research isn't community-based sort of research, that we're not asking the community, like, what would be best for you? Like, this whole idea of that the ivory tower, the academic center knows the right thing to do, when the reality is maybe there's a rural facility that has actually figured out a patient-centered shared decision-making model that incorporates, that appropriately incorporates family, you know, faith communities in a way that the big downtown facility struggles with. So, to, to think that like we actually have something to learn from uh, from from those little places that's gonna that's gonna stir the pot. Yeah, it's an ego trip for yeah. some people. So. Yeah, but necessary. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love this. How feeding difficulties are inherently emotional, more so than many other medical decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly my perspective as as a pediatrician, I see this and. You know, we kind of talked about it at the beginning that, you know, sort of issues around, particularly around speech and feeding, like these are just fundamentally um, such important parts of who we are and, and how we interact with one another socially. And, and when I talk to our fellows about, because we see a lot of um, emotion, particularly at end of life, when people, when patients get to the place where they um, aren't interested in eating, right? When they, for whatever reason, what's underlying their condition, you know, losing the interest and, and or losing the ability um, and, and how devastating that is for families. And we see this all the time where, where the grandma is still trying to shove down, you know, meatloaf that she made. Cause she's like, well, that was his favorite and dang it. Like, and, and the patient's nauseated and doesn't want it. And, and, but that, but that 
that's what we do for sick people. I mean, from the time we were little kids, when we're sick, you know, we, they give us chicken soup and that's how you get better. And so what happens when you can't do that? When one of the, when, especially for non-medical people, the one thing that I have to show love or to care for someone, what happens if you take that away from me? So unless we have, we have to be prepared to respond to just that grief, to that emotion that comes with that. And can we be thoughtful about helping caregivers have other meaningful ways to love and to care when, when those things aren't there anymore. But yeah, I, I mean, I, and I, for us in the hospital, I see this a lot that it's like, Oh, well, you know, it's no big deal. She, she failed her swallow study. And, and to us, it's just, it's routine. It's just something written in the chart and we just go and we give it to the family. And, but to them, right. Like that is in many ways, sometimes even harder than some of these other medical decisions because it's also just so fundamental and it's understandable, right? I mean, I understand why I can no longer get immunotherapy, but I, but I can totally understand why he's not eating. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times we forget that as speech pathologists, you know, it's like, okay, well now you're on thick and liquids, you know, don't worry, we'll do what we can to get you off them soon, you know, and just kind of drop that bomb and walk away. And then, People are like, what do you, what do you mean? I can't have my sweet tea anymore. I can't drink coffee with my wife at breakfast. You know, there's just, we forget the magnitude of what we're actually saying when this is such a fundamental thing that brings so many people joy and it's just part of our daily activities. Yeah. And yeah. it's something I just don't ever want to lose sight of. And, and I hate to hear that some people do. Let me ask you, how did you get into palliative care? Yeah. So, um, when I was a medical student, I went to the university of Kentucky and, um, I was planning my fourth year schedule and there was, uh, and I had an elective and there was a hospice elective with what was then called um, Hospice of the Bluegrass and very well known, respected hospice. And I kind of signed up for it because at the time I'd really not experienced a lot of loss in my family and, and knew I was going to be taking care of sick patients and, and was going to lose people. And I was like, I think I need to sort of learn more about this. And, um, it was, I mean, one of the best things that I did in my medical training. And I think what I discovered, you know, looking back on it is, I mean, in many ways, I mean, this sounds sort of overly dramatic, but I, but it really was redemptive. It, it sort of restored in me like what medicine can be and to see medicine done in such a holistic way that really sort of respects team roles and, and recognizes that to care well for people, we have to address the whole person physically, emotionally, emotionally, socially, spiritually, that sort of built into that hospice model and that we've adopted in the palliative care world, this kind of holistic or total um, treatment of suffering. I think that was incredible for me. I think it was one of the few places that I saw in healthcare where spirituality and faith was taken seriously. Um, again, that's something that I think that medicine tends to be really weird about. It's sort of, you know, when people cross the threshold in the hospital, we don't know how to talk about it. And yet for many, many of us, of providers, clinicians, you know, have our own spiritual practices or faith and religion. And somehow 
we get weird when this thing that is actually so profoundly important to who we are and to how we make decisions and to how we view the world and eternity, why would that not be a part of our conversation as we talk about serious illness or end-of-life care? And so I really saw palliative care bring those things together. I did not think I was going to do it. It was sort of like, oh, well, that, I'm glad I did this. You know, I've got, I know they're there. And then um, I came down to the University of Alabama at Birmingham at UAB, originally thinking that I was going to do infectious disease work and thought, um, particularly was interested in um, global HIV and had done some work with the student global AIDS campaign and, and thought I was going to do ID with adults and kids. And it was when I was an intern and I was in the ICU, the medical ICU. Um, I can still remember being on call one of my very first nights and this um, middle-aged man who was dying in the ICU and um, he wasn't even my patient. It was a patient that I was cross covering on, right. That I'm just, and that's one of those where, you know, keep them alive till seven Oh five. Like you're just trying your best to just, you know, fix things during the night. And, and, and he was not having that. He was just declining. And I, every hour I was going in and having to consent his wife to give new blood products or start this medicine. And, and I will never forget, like in the middle of the night, um, her in the dark of this ICU sitting at his bedside and her turning to me and saying, if this was your dad, what would you do? Right. And suddenly I'm like shook out of my, okay, I need to give him more platelets. Um, And I remember not knowing how to answer that question, but knowing that it was a question that deserved an answer, but it was, there was something incredibly vulnerable and honest and human about that question. And, uh, and I was like, I want to be in a place where I can help answer that question mm-hmm. for patients and families. So that's why. I, Do you remember what you told her? Um, I I remember I danced around. I like, you know, was awkward and weird and <laughs> and sort of you know, tried to do what I thought I was supposed to do, where I was like, well, you know, every situation is different and I can't say, you know, you, only you know him the best. But I remember sort of, in some awkward kind of very honest way saying that I think he was dying and um, that I would want to make sure that he was comfortable and that he, and that I could say goodbye. So um, it certainly wasn't eloquent and, um, and there was a lot more words than there needed to be, but I think I tried to answer the question and he died that night. He died that morning. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's, so cool. I guess it's the only words I have. Not cool, but meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very it's meaningful. life. Yeah. This is life. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else to share with everybody? This has been probably my most favorite conversation. Oh, well, no, no. Thank you so much for the time. And yeah. Do you have, do you have anything where people can find out more about you or yeah. Do you write things or? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, you know, I encourage folks to, um, you know, I mentioned Vital Talk earlier, and I think especially for clinicians, I encourage folks to go to um, vitaltalk.org. So that um, not-for-profit has a website that has tons of free resources. So help with having hard conversations and really, you know, we want to help kind of change the culture in healthcare to that we can care better for patients and families with serious illness if we have better relationships 
with them and with each other. And so there are videos, there are talking maps, there are cars, there's even an app you can download for your phone that can give you pointers or you can look up things like, oh my gosh, I'm heading into this family meeting and what are some things I should be mindful of? Um, so a really, I think, great resource uh, for folks if they're interested, particularly in um, learning more about um, serious illness conversations. Awesome. Well, thank you so yeah. much. I can't thank you enough for this. This was wonderful. Yeah, well, thank you for giving voice to important topics. Yeah. And congratulations yeah, on 2 million plus. Thank you. That's creepy. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much. Yes. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.